Welcome to the second episode of the Straight to the Point podcast. What's in a vaccine? I'm your host, Isaac Lindenberger, and today we are going to take a multifaceted approach to discussing vaccines. First, you'll hear a very powerful story from a former anti-vaccine single mother, Steph Marie, whose child got pertussis and she never got them vaccinated. It's a powerful story, as well as somewhat intense. Fair warning, there are a few F-bombs. But it's real, authentic, and it's from the heart. After hearing Steph's experiences in leaving the anti-vaccine movement, we will hear from a biochemistry student, Edward Nirenberg. Edward is a recent graduate from Cornell who studied macrophages in an immunology lab while working on a degree in biological sciences. We discuss adjuvants, antigens, preventable diseases, and more in a thorough investigation into the evidence and data, as well as an attempt at understanding the core of anti-vaccination attitudes. Evidence and sources are available in the show notes, as well as on our website, straighttothepointshow.com or sttpshow.com. Also, the audio can be finicky, as this was recorded live, so I apologize for that. But the conversation is really worth it. So let's get started, and please welcome Steph Marie and Edward Nirenberg. Steph, how's it going? Thank you for joining us today. Yes, I am so glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So let's see. We were just talking a lot about vaccine science. We're going to kind of switch gears into your personal experiences with vaccines. So tell me about how you came across learning about vaccines and kind of what ended up happening for you with that whole experience. Okay, so I will say, um, you know, um, you know, my son is three. Um, when I was pregnant, um, my ex-mother-in-law, um, who is a super anti-vaxxer, um, like drilled it into my head that like vaccines would cause autism. They would destroy him, you know, because, you know, autism's in the family and like, it's like this like death sentence, right? Like, oh my God, autism, right? And at that point, I was like a new mom. I knew nothing, right? And um, so I kind of just like went with it. Right. And so for years, like, I think it was like two and a half, two and a half years that I literally bought into this anti-vax propaganda. And not only that, but you know, with what sometimes comes with like anti-vax conspiracy theories, is like other conspiracies, you know? So it's like that whole rabbit yeah. hole you go under. Um, it was just like this mindset of paranoia of, everything coming to get you, you know, vaccines are going to kill you. They're, they're going to, you know, they, they have this agenda. Right. And so, um, I moved away cause I was living with her. I moved away. And then like a year later I moved back. And what happened was, um, her unvaxxed eight year old came home from school and he gave my, two-year-old pertussis 
and me pertussis. Oh. We both got whooping. Um, and I just remember like, like just sitting there like, dude, like, you know, my son has this preventable fucking disease and I was like beating myself up over it. Cause like, you know, he could have had that vaccine, but you know, it was at the time I, I was just so lost, you know, like I just believed whatever they told me, you know, she told me, but, um, you know, he got fucking whooping cough. I got whooping cough. We had it so bad. Her fucking unvaxxed kid had it so fucking bad. Like all of us were under house quarantine for like weeks, months, because it lasted that fucking long. Like literally, like whooping cough does not go away overnight. Like it lasts a long time. And so, you know, that whole, uh, you know, that, that whole situation got me really thinking like, you know, um, you know, are vaccines bad? Are vaccines poison? Are they meant to depopulate? Are they meant to harm people? And all these things that I would I was taught. And then, you know, it got to the point where I was like, dude, no, you know, because I was fully vaccinated as a child and I'm safe. I'm good. I've never once had whooping cough, anything like that, measles, chicken pox, anything like that growing up. The only time I had whooping cough was that time when probably like years had gone and my immunity had waned from the vaccination I got as a child. But, you know, <clears throat> seeing my son, my two-year-old son coughing to the point where he's throwing up in a bucket, he's waking up periodically throughout the night, throwing up in a fucking bucket, you know, from coughing so hard, you know? And then like freaking pneumonia, right? Like like pneumonia is like a freaking obvious um, risk of having whooping cough, and it just made me really think, like, dude, like vaccines are not bad, and so that led me to do more research um, as a mom, because I will say, like, I was very, 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 very anti-vax for a long time. Like, I was that person who thought, you know vaccines were population control. I was that person who thought that vaccines were meant to sterilize people. I was that person who thought that vaccines, you know, all those things, like all those fucking conspiracy theories, like that was me, right? That was me. And it took seeing my son suffer the way he did to really fucking like wake me up to reality and like say like, you know, the medical profession is not against us. The fucking doctors have nothing. They have no agenda to harm us. The UN, the World Health Organization, like all these organizations, the CDC, like, no, they're not here to fucking harm us. You know, Bill Gates, he's not here to harm us, dude. And, um, you know, it took me that experience to fucking take a step back and just really sit with my thoughts and be like, you know, if only my son had been vaccinated with like deep DTAP or whatever it was, right? Like he would not have had that experience because man, it was bad. It was really bad. I felt so horrible for it. Um, but that was definitely the main catalyst that I guess sprung me into seeking out definite scientific studies like 
legit science that, you know, prove that vaccines work. And I was lucky enough. Um, it's funny enough on, on one of your threads, Isaac, um, you know, I was reading through them one day and I came across a few people that seemed very knowledgeable. And then I had contact with somebody and, you know, that had basically reaffirmed my beliefs. That person was a doctor, um, is a doctor. And, you know, basically, I don't know. I basically changed my mind because like, you know, there's no reason, there's no fucking reason. Like whether you want to be holistic or natural or you want to be godly, you know, your, your immune system is from God. I heard that earlier. No, no, no. Like our immune systems can go fucking haywire. A, we have freaking like immuno diseases, right? Like fucking tons of fucking diseases that our immune, our, our, our immune systems attack itself. Right. Um, so no, like that's not true, but I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, that experience led me to um, realize that my previous conceptions were fucking wrong and harmful. And they came from a place of fear and ignorance and a lack of understanding of science and medicine, right? Um, so, yeah, I guess... Um, I can say I've gotten my son vaccinated, I've been vaccinated, and we're totally healthy. We're good, right? Like, we're good. So, that's awesome. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, that's a crazy story, honestly. I've heard that pertussis is known as the 100-day cough. And it's, yes, even more than that. Sounds intense. I can, tell, I can tell, tell you. Okay, so my brother-in-law ex-brother-in-law came home with um pertussis i think it was about january and i think pertussis has like a two-week incubation period like at first you have like mild cold symptoms and then it evolves into you know whooping cough you know yes horrible um but from january to it was i think it was like april or may both me and my son still had it. Literally. Like, it did not go away. Wow. Yes. That is a very long time. Wow, and it's crazy to think that a vaccine could prevent that whole thing. And I imagine that it's kind of hard for someone to change their mind when they're anti-vaccine. I mean, I at least experience this personally because there's a whole network of associated cognitive structures associated with the attitude. You've got you know, a, a large need for freedom, which I love freedom too. You know, it's great, yeah, but right. all of these things kind of tie into each other. And so you, you take out one pillar and something else in the ecosystem quickly replaces it. But when you actually see it for yourself before your eyes, for your own kid, I imagine that there's only so much abstractions where you're kind of limited there, where you start to really think, yeah. oh man, maybe my worldview wasn't perfect. And to see your kid suffer like that, you know, it's just like my whole world, my whole, my whole perception of what I believed at the time just turned upside down. And it was like, you know, my, 
if she sees us, I don't care. <laughs> Ex mother in law, you know, she was like, well, at least we'll have immunity for life. Really? So I guess natural immunity is more important than, you know, having your child not suffer getting a vaccine, right? So, yes, let's right, have natural like immunity. Suffer for fucking months at a time for fucking pertussis that you can spread to babies who will die of it, and yet that's okay. It's very selfish. It's very, very, very selfish. It's like people who go on and they're like, "Oh, I'm not gonna wear a mask because, like, you know, I don't believe in COVID," and yet you're in the fucking store and there's fucking ninety-nine year old fucking Boomer Joe over there who has fucking <laughs> heart disease diabetes all over him and guess what now he's fucking dead because he got covid from you you know right and these beliefs have real consequences yes as you've seen that's why i believe that vaccines and um even now masks you know whatever we can do to protect our community is so important like i don't care about the conspiracy theories or where you know say covid originated from like you know whatever dude right either way it's here now it's here now <laughs> right we gotta do our best to help people who can't otherwise help themselves because they might have many issues that you know they otherwise can't really um manage on their own especially when they're fucking issues like fucking covid going around um but i will say you know i think i said this before like you know i was that fucking typical anti-vaxxer blasting facebook with you know bill gates this bill gates that oh abortive fetal cells um aluminum you know causes autism mercury causes autism uh, what else was it? Polysorbate 80. It's like, yeah. So, um, yeah, no. <laughs> I think some of it comes from a, a drive to be unique too, because if you're anti-vax, you're not following the norm, right? You're more of a unique individual. And then if you're pro-vax, it's hard to replace, right? Because if you say I'm pro-vax, oh, I'm like most people now, you know, it takes away from the distinct individuality that comes with holding some of these positions along with some of the associated, you know, conspiratorial concepts that are usually coinciding with those attitudes. So it can be, did you experience that at all? Was it like, did you feel like you lost some of your uniqueness by no longer being anti-vax? No, I really didn't. I, um, I realized that I had been somewhat brainwashed into a cult because I was, you know, I understand there's like different sects of being against vaccines for different reasons. Mine, yes, specifically mine, mine came from an, a huge distrust of government, a huge mm-hmm. distrust of, um, you know, the World Health Organization. Like I bought into those ideas that, you know, these big pharma companies are all in the same fucking bed with like big pharma, big agro, big whatever else. And it's like all one fucking thing. And it's like, you know, like you get into that and it's like, you know, it's hard not to see like, okay, like it's all for profit at the expense of people. 
And then there's the whole thing where you go like look back at like Operation Paperclip, like Merck coming here. And it's like, you know, I guess looking at certain histories and how these pharmaceutical companies came to be in our country um, can be startling. Um, and what they've done in the past, especially like World War II and whatnot. Um, but I can definitely say that, you know, getting out of that whole mindset has been liberating because I was living for a long time in such a state of fear, in such a state of Like, I cannot trust the world, right? Like, I can't trust my government. I can't trust my fucking doctor. Like, you know, and what's sad is, like, a lot of anti-vaxxers, you know, they'd rather avoid doctors because they're so scared and fearful of doctors. Because doctors are out to get, are out to get them, right? Like, doctors are trying to kill them. They're trying to hurt them. They're trying to prescribe medications that will kill them. And it's like, dude, like, no. Like, you know what I mean? And so I had to basically take time to unlearn all of that and basically, you know, reaffirm the fact that like doctors are like there to help us, right? Doctors are not in the business to kill people, you know? Right. Um, and in terms of the whole so, depth of the, you know, the... Go ahead. Oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. So, well, you were talking... You were talking about some of the, the, the depths of the anti-vaccine ideas, and they can seem convincing, right? They're very wide. It seems to cover a whole encompassed worldview. But the problem is, while it's wide, it has little depth. You look into one of the, you individualize and isolate one of the components, and you see it only goes so far. But when you see all of them in front of you at once, it's like, oh, look, everything's covered here. You have to really have a a source of scrutiny when you're looking at this stuff to actually notice it. So I wanted to ask you about some of your experiences when it came to anti-vaccine kids and their general level of health, because there's this rumor that anti-vax kids are very healthy and vaccinated kids are unhealthy and you have some experience with this. So what's your analysis here? Okay. So I will say, um, my son is, you know, when he was completely unvaccinated, right? So I will say at the point at which he was completely unvaccinated for like, what, two and a half, three years, um, you know, he still had autism. He still had ADHD. He still had fucking gut issues, constipation, chronic constipation, even since he was a baby and I breastfed him for years. Um, you know, he still had a lot of health issues, chronic ear infections. And like, I know a lot of anti-vaxxers will say chronic ear infections have to do with vaccines, constipation, vaccines, you know, autism, vaccines, ADHD, vaccines, you know? Um, but you know, there's a lot of cases where, you know, there's unvaccinated kids that have all these same issues. And the problem is, is that, you know, parents, when they cannot agree or come to terms with their child's issues, they blame it on vaccines. Oh, my child's autistic. It's vaccines. Really? So you can't take fucking five minutes 
to go online and learn about autism and instead you think it's a defect so you want to blame it on fucking vaccines as if your child is damaged no autism is not damaged adhd is not damaged these things anything being neurodiverse is not fucking vaccine injury no no like it makes me so mad like literally it makes me so fucking mad like so I will say, um, here's an anecdote. So here's the, my brother-in-law-ish, eight years old, that brought whooping cough to, you know, my son and I um, last year. So he's completely unvaccinated. Um, and you'll hear anti-vaxxers say, oh, well, and I, you know, unvaxxed kids are healthier than, you know, vaxxed kids. So this child... I'll name him B, right? B. For Vendetta. Oh, B. Gotcha. B. B. Like, as in boy. Um, okay. B. Uh, um, he's been more sick. Like, I've known him since he was, like, just about two. So he's been more sick in his entire life that I've known him than I've seen any other kid be sick. And he's unvaccinated, right? So I honestly think... Um, they use that, uh, argument to further their agenda because there's no scientific basis that proves that, you know, the vaccinated or the unvaccinated are healthy versus unhealthy. Like there's nothing of that. Right. So, I mean, I have experience, I've grown up in an unvaccinated environment. I've, you know, somewhat. I guess engage myself into an unvaccinated family and witnessed their family members that are unvaxxed be super sick constantly, you know? So I think that whole argument is fucking ridiculous because they're I think it's honestly when people say that, it's just to further their fucking agenda. You know? Right. Or confirm their own beliefs to themselves potentially. Because that's, that's where, yes. Right. They're looking they're looking everywhere for it. And the whole idea that just because you know, even, let's say there is an unvaccinated kid that's very healthy, right? That doesn't prove anything. I have an uncle who smokes cigarettes. He's been smoking for 30 years and he's in great shape. So by my subjective anecdotal experience, I should smoke cigarettes to be healthy and definitely yeah. shouldn't expect any adverse health outcomes. Even if the literature is abundant with evidence that I shouldn't smoke, I'm going to disregard that based on my personal firsthand experiences. It's just not very intelligent. So this whole thing debunks two ideas. It debunks the idea that one, anti-vax kids are healthier. There's actually a lot of research that shows they're not. They're unhealthier, yeah. actually. Yeah. Let's look at yeah. vax versus unvax studies. They do exist. And it also debunks the idea that anti-vaxxers never change their mind. Because I used to lean anti-vaccine too until I educated myself further. I know you So did. it's kind of like a double whammy here. <laughs> What'd you say? Yes. I said, that's when I started following you. And then you changed your mind. All the anti-vaxxers got all up in their fucking panties because of it. <laughs> yeah, they weren't happy. Because no one can naturally change their mind, right? They must be paid off. But you and on our last episode with Christina are both examples of people who in real life have changed their mind after being exposed to new evidence. So... Thank you for those stories. That's very compelling. And it's very interesting to see that you went through such a dramatic transformation 
when it comes to your perspective on vaccines and science. And I'm, I'm glad that you experienced it. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Yay. Awesome. I, I put your name up there so people can find you. But well, hopefully you can come to the vaccine talk discussion after. And that's where we'll be talking about the whole thing. And let's segue into Edward and finish talking about the science. So thank you again, Steph. That was awesome. Okay. All right, here he comes. Hey, Edward. Good to have you back here. Ed, what introduced you to immunizations and how did you start researching this topic in the first place? Uh... Well, in high school, uh, my AP biology teacher was explaining, kind of in an indirect way, the hierarchy of evidence. And she needed an example of a study that was very poorly done. And she opted to go with Wakefield's original case series uh, regarding MMR uh, and the purported autistic colitis condition that still has yet to be substantiated the existence of. Uh, And therein we started discussing the major flaws, essentially, with uh, the, majorly it was the external validity of the paper, how you can't generalize the findings of the case studies, uh, the case series to an entire population. And then we Mm -hmm. kind of paused and looked at the public health impact. And that was really kind of staggering to me because it was so poorly done. And on top of that, debunked and shown to be fraudulent on multiple levels. And yet, people still subscribe to these patently false ideas. Uh, And I found that very puzzling. And then once I got to college, uh, there was a bit of a scheduling snafu, and I ended up taking uh, immunology my first semester, which was a senior seminar, which I don't recommend freshmen do. Uh, But my professor, um, yeah, my my professor felt that uh, I had a knack for it. So then she told me that, now being a seasoned whole one semester into my undergraduate degree, I was ready for the graduate course, uh, which was taken the next semester, uh, which was very interesting. Uh, it, uh, I, I hadn't had very much experience reading papers before, so there was quite a steep learning curve. And uh, then I ended up actually joining that professor's laboratory, and she studied uh, a cell type called macrophages which are part of the innate immune system. And they're a really, really fascinating cell type, actually. They do so many things beyond the immune system. Like, they're really intimately involved in, for example, iron metabolism, and they're, like, the major cells involved in the pathogenesis of atherosclerotic disease, which, in fact, so makes them the leading cause of death because of heart disease, which is the leading cause of death globally in both high- and low-income nations. Uh, And... Also, uh, things like multiple sclerosis were of interest to her. Uh, and the major project we worked with was something, uh, I, I'll try to summarize as simply as I can, but it's related to this thing called mechanotransduction, which is basically how cells feel their physical environment and like how stiff it is and respond to that. So cells actually have a skeleton within them that's made of proteins called the cytoskeleton, and they can totally reorganize it depending on the, the substrate that they're on. And she was really interested in examining how different substrate stiffnesses affected how macrophages would respond with respect to inflammation. Uh, and basically, mm-hmm. on so, so she would model different tissues with different stiffnesses of gels uh, and they corresponded to, for example, brain, which is like a very soft tissue, 
uh, and bone, which is a very, very hard tissue. And basically, the loose trend seemed to be that softer tissues seem to promote more inflammation, uh, which has really interesting implications, but may, not directly in a therapeutic sense, but more things for us to be mindful of in the preclinical setting so that we have better models and to be aware of possible deficiencies in our in vitro studies. I see. So this was at um, college that you started taking these classes. You went to Cornell, right? Mm -hmm. Is your undergrad? Yep. And then uh, that's where you were exposed to immunology and vaccine science. Yes. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So you've got some experience with the actual research side of things and the actual literature behind vaccines. So it's funny because a lot of people say, you know, people who are educated on vaccines, like go to medical school, don't know anything about them. So let's see what your education taught you, because I want to talk about how vaccines actually work. So in terms of how vaccines work, right, how would you describe just a very general mechanism of action for vaccination? And then we'll get into the details after that. Sure. So the basic concept of a vaccine is to simulate an infection for the immune system against the relevant pathogen in the manner that you are able to elicit the appropriate correlates of protection so that an encounter with the actual pathogen does not produce disease. And correlates of protection is kind of a term of the art in vaccinology. It basically means something that we can measure that is statistically associated with being protected against that disease. So this could be antibodies or it could be T cells, for example. Uh, but that's specific to the particular disease. Okay, so in terms of antibodies, right, can you describe what those are and how they're related to vaccines and infection? Absolutely. So most vaccines are protected through through the induction of antibodies. And antibodies are these proteins that are made by a cell type in your body called the B lymphocyte where the B, uh, they're made in the bone marrow, but they're actually called a B lymphocyte because they were found in a part of a chicken called the bursa of the fabricus or fabricius, I think, um, which is a gland near its anus. Um, but basically, uh, there are uh, a bunch of different kinds of antibodies. Uh, we group them in a lot of different ways. One way we talk about them is with respect to something called isotype, and there are five basic isotypes. Uh, there's uh, G, which is a really important one, which is associated with mature immune responses. There's M, which is produced in the early phases of an immune response and then becomes uh, is converted to G by the B cell. Uh, there's E, which is really important for defense against parasites, but can actually uh, be dangerous because it can cause allergy and anaphylaxis. There's A, which is protective at the mucosal surfaces of the body, like the respiratory tract and the gastrointestinal tract. And there's D, and no one is quite sure what D does, but we know that it exists. Mm. Um, And each person has the capacity to make about 10 to the 12th or so antibodies. So that's roughly 1 trillion, which is a huge, huge number. Uh, And antibodies are excellent at conferring protection because they to three major things. So the first thing that they do very, very well is something called neutralization. So if you think about an infection, there are a few ways that damage can occur. One is by the production of toxins, which is how things like tetanus and diphtheria work. 
so antibodies can bind the toxin and prevent it from reaching its target site so that no toxic effect occurs. This is also the basis of, for example, antivenoms. Uh, antibodies also perform another function, which is called opsonization, which basically means that they're marking that target for destruction. They've recognized it as a threat, and they're now going to recruit the cellular actors of the immune system to eliminate it. And last, but certainly not least, um, there's uh, they can also do complement activation. So this is, uh, you have a bunch of proteins in your blood, most of them are made in your liver, that are called complement. And I like to think of these as the little bombs inside the blood. Uh, they're made in an inactive form, but they have the potential to literally poke holes inside cells and kill them. Uh, so they can do that to bacteria. They, in the context of some autoimmune disease, they can do that to your own cells, which can be quite bad. Um, and of course, uh, there's actually new data that's very interesting because we classically think of antibodies as providing protection outside of cells. But some new findings suggest that they have ways of getting inside cells and actually targeting viruses inside the cell that are already infecting that cell. And uh, more studies are underway to examine how that might work. Okay, that's interesting. So antibodies are generated from an immune response to prepare the body for a future infection. Because if you don't have the antibodies before you're exposed, your defenses are at the lowest, and then that's when the disease can do the most damage, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. So where do antigens come into play here? What are antigens um, put simply? And then what's their mechanism of action when it comes to conferring immunity? Well, uh, in immunology, they, they're a little bit sloppy with their terminology. So formally speaking, an antigen is anything that the immune system can recognize. And this is a very vague term because this could be limited to a protein or a sugar, or it can be like an entire bacterium. Uh, so more broadly, it's probably better to use the term immunogen in most cases, which means just in general, an antigen that's capable of eliciting an immune response. Um, so the framework for how we think about this today is something known as the danger model, which says, uh, it's kind of an updated version of an older model, which was the self versus non-self framework, which basically said that our immune system will be naturally recognize things that it knows are not self and destroy them. But there are a lot of problems with that idea, because we now know that we have a microbiome, a microbiota, uh, which are decidedly not self. They're bacteria, they're fungi, even viruses. Uh, and yet our immune system is able to establish an equilibrium with them and not respond. So the missing link seemed to be danger signals or alarming. So in the context of danger, the immune system can recognize foreign substrates like bacteria, their proteins, their sugars, or viruses, and initiate a response accordingly. Okay, so basically the antigen is like, like a weakened version of the virus, right? Because a lot of people don't recognize this, but the dead virus itself might not be totally threatening because it's dead. Is that where adjuvants come in? Because the antigen isn't very stimulating? It's so attenuated? In part. In part. So not all vaccines actually require adjuvants, which I feel like is a common misconception when people start researching vaccines. The point 
of adjuvants, broadly speaking, is to supply the immune system with those danger signals that it otherwise wouldn't get. So like, for example, the hepatitis B vaccine contains just a single protein that isn't going to be threatening to your immune system. Your immune system isn't going to, to think of it as a threat and it's not going to respond if you just give that protein. But when you deliver it on alum, the aluminum adjuvants, those supply the immune system with the necessary danger signals it needs. It will initiate inflammation, and from there it can go on to orchestrate an adaptive immune response and generate antibodies. But then you've got live vaccines. So these are uh, these are generally very effective, but not always. Uh, they basically involve taking the pathogen, the thing that causes disease, and growing it for many, many generations on in conditions that don't resemble physiological ones. So, for example, the body is normally about 37 Celsius. That's 98.6 barbarian. Um, and if you, for example, grow a virus for 50 generations at 32 Celsius and then introduce it into the body, it will not be able to replicate effectively, but it will still retain all the structural features it needs to produce an immune response, and it will replicate just enough that it fulfills the requirement of danger. And a similar concept applies with inactivated vaccines, which have absolutely no ability to replicate, but still retained all those structural features needed to elicit those danger signals. Okay, yeah, I feel like that is a general misconception that all vaccines have adjuvants. So thank you for clarifying that. In terms of the actual immune system, right, what do you think about the idea that a newborn immune system is overloaded by vaccines, you know, too many, too fast. What do you think about that whole concept? Uh, well, truthfully, I, I think it's comical in how ignorant it is uh, for several reasons. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, the antibody repertoire, the, the total supply of antibodies that people can make is on the order of 10 to the 12th, so 1 trillion. On the entire vaccine schedule, if you count every discrete protein, sugar, etc., you end up with about a thousand. So it really doesn't even put a dent in it. But uh, ah. in addition to that, studies have examined, compare, compared the antigenic load, so to speak, within the first four years of life for children who are vaccinated versus those who are not. And there literally is no significant difference in the number of antigens. It was like 240, 242 or so uh, that they detected. So really it, it, it's comically wrong. It's just not true. Okay. So what about the idea that the newborns don't need, they, they don't, shouldn't have all the vaccines, right? Because it's too fast. Well, if their immune system can handle vaccines, why can't their immune system handle uh, natural diseases? That's a really good question. Uh, and to answer it, we actually have to go back in time a little bit to before the baby is a baby to when it's a fetus. Mm -hmm. So if you think about an organ transplant for a second, you are getting a bunch of tissue that is not self, and your immune system is expected to tolerate that uh, from the perspective of the, of the pregnant person. The problem with that is uh, for people to hold on to organ transplants, we generally have to pump them full of immunosuppressants, and even then they don't last forever, and eventually they need another one. And yet, you are supposed to tolerate an entire new person growing inside of you that is decidedly genetically different from you and not react to it. So right. how does this happen? So first of all, 
pregnant women undergo complicated immunological changes to prevent rejection of the fetus on an immunological level. And the placenta kind of helps with that uh, by providing a physical barrier against the mother's immune system. Uh, but of course, an imperfect one, which we can actually exploit in vaccination with pregnancy vaccination, which I think I can elaborate on later. But from the other side of things, the fetus is also growing an immune system and it's being housed in an environment that is also not self. And obviously, if the fetus starts to reject the mother, it's going to end badly because the fetus is entirely dependent on the mother for its survival. So right. the basic outcome is after birth, the newborn, the neonate, has uh, its immune system is primed towards what's known as immunological tolerance, the state of unresponsiveness. It's much more difficult for it to do the things that an adult immune system is capable of. So, for example, one of the reasons that we tend to need so many doses of vaccines early on in the schedule is because even though the child is able to respond effectively, it has a very hard time holding on to immunological memory after it's been formed. Uh, there are also mm. more fundamental functional differences and structural ones uh, in the organization of the immune system in the child, uh, in particular with one cell type called the neutrophil. So neutrophils are the most abundant white blood cell in your blood, and they're actually uh, the major component of pus. Uh, so th that's all dead neutrophils, basically. And they're absolutely critical for responding to extracellular bacteria, uh, which uh, have a significant burden uh, for feed for newborns uh, in infection. But the problem with the newborn of the, the, the neutrophils of the newborn, excuse me, is that they are functionally immature. They're not able to generate uh, so-called reactive oxygen species effectively yet. And on top of that, they arise very late in gestation. So normally, neutrophils get pulled out from the bone marrow in response to signals from the immune system uh, during inflammation. But because they arise so late in the bone marrow, the sheer reserve that the fetus or the, that the newborn has to work with is much smaller. And that leaves them quite vulnerable. So in effect, there are a number of factors really that blunt the ability of the newborn to respond to any kind of immunological insult. And for that reason, vaccines are absolutely critical in helping to reduce early life mortality. Okay, yeah, I think that answers that question very well. In terms of the same vein of ideas, there's this common misconception that the immune system is perfect, right? But I've always found that funny. If the immune system is perfect, then you shouldn't have to improve it at all. But normally, when you're told the immune system is perfect, you're also told you can improve it with good health and, and hygiene and if you can improve it in the first place, it's not necessarily perfect. Also, people die from these diseases. So what do you think when you hear the immune system is God's gift and there's nothing wrong with it inherently? Well, it's a little awkward for me as an atheist when people refer to it as God's gift. Um, but uh, more, more germane to the subject, uh, it's a little bit naive to think that your immune system is perfect and all these pathogens have not figured out a way to get around it. Because here's the thing, as much as you don't want to be infected by all these diseases, as much as your body and your immune system are working very hard to prevent that, these pathogens often very much do need to be, need to be able to infect you because it's required for them to proliferate, to propagate, to infect the next person and so forth. So what that means is that you are constantly in an evolutionary arms race with all of these pathogens that are actively interact with your immune system, mm -hmm. potentially accumulating mutations to escape it uh, and developing new virulence factors. And uh, the reality is that they evolve much more quickly than we do. I mean, um, 
Like, for mm-hmm. example, meningococcus, I, I think, is one of the scariest infectious diseases out there. Uh, I talked about antibodies earlier and how they're excellent at providing infection, but meningococcus can make an enzyme that destroys them. Oh. Uh, so that's quite scary. Uh, and it's not, it's not that uncommon strategy, actually. There are also proteins that can inhibit the complement system I mentioned earlier, those little bombs in your blood. Uh, it, it's very clever. And I mean, viruses, for example, the major defense from the side of innate immunity that we have against viruses is something called the interferon system, which basically works to rewire the cell metabolism so that it's not able to effectively support a viral infection. But viruses make proteins that suppress interferons. And in fact, uh, SARS coronavirus 2 does this. And so do many other coronaviruses. Oh. So this this naive idea that the immune system is perfect and that's why you can handle any infectious disease. Well, I mean, in the pre-antibiotic era, in the pre-vaccine era, it, it was a leading cause of death. In the pediatric uh, world, it still is a leading cause of death, unfortunately, infection. And I mean, they they evolve much more quickly than we can. That's just the reality. Right. It's grim and it's harsh, but it's the truth. Yeah, it is harsh by definition. So what about the idea that if I don't vaccinate, but I just expose myself to all these diseases and don't wash my hands or anything like that, I'll have a strong immune system and it will be able to handle anything. What uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think that that is probably intended as a perversion of the hygiene hypothesis, um, which is now in the world of immunology largely being subsumed by a better idea, I think, which is called the old friends hypothesis. Um, So it's true that you do need exposure, especially early in life, to certain uh, microbes to be immunologically healthy, uh, to be able to prevent allergic disease, for example. Uh, But for one thing, environment isn't the only thing that matters. There are a number of genetic factors which are largely not controllable. They're, They're largely beyond your control. Um, and beyond that, to gratuitously expose yourself to infection does constitute a significant risk to your safety. The reality is that a lot of those agents are not commensal species, which is to say, um, commensal is a word that literally means that you eat at the same table. So a lot of your bacteria aren't inherently going to cause disease. In fact, they might have important roles in supporting your metabolism. Like, for example, they can help with the production of vitamin K, although not very early on in life because the gut hasn't been seeded with those microbes yet. But the reality is that Hmm. constantly exposing yourself to pathogens is a significant risk to your safety. And it's just unwise, frankly. Uh, Overly sanitized lifestyles, like running to hand sanitizer every second, and for example, refraining from exposure to certain farm animals or pets, that can definitely seem to help promote allergic disease. And that's largely thought in part to be a consequence of, um, if going back to the hygiene hypothesis, it's thought to be related to exposure to parasites, which are, because uh, we've become so obsessed with being clean, basically, are virtually non-existent in high-income nations, but pose a much more significant disease burden in lower-income nations. And as a result, we, we seem oh. to see a lot less allergic disease. So there's kind of a balance there between not wanting to over-sanitize everything in an extreme way, but still wanting to wash your hands, something like that. You will not find an immunologist on the planet who will tell you not to wash your hands because it's good for your immune system. I wouldn't think so, but I hear people talking about this all the time. So, but they're not immunologists, of course. So, 
I remember we were talking before about parents and the perceived risk of vaccination and how much more dangerous not vaccinating needs to be perceived to be to encourage vaccination behavior. Can you go through that with me real quick? Absolutely. So there, there are a few factors here that are important to consider. Uh, one of them I, that uh, I found very interesting is something called negativity bias. So in general, we invest a lot more mental effort into thinking about the bad than we do the good. Uh, and there's actually a really interesting piece on this. Let me, uh, let me pull it up. Let me see here. Uh, it was called, it's called, let me see one second. Bad is stronger than good. Um, it's by, oh, let me just get it. Kathleen Zivos in, uh, from Case Western Reserve University. It was published in the Review of General Psychology in 2001. And she writes that, uh, the self is more motivated to avoid bad self definitions than to pursue good ones. And bad impressions and bad stereotypes are quicker to form and more resistant to disconfirmation than good ones. So I think that that's very significant because once someone's kind of planted the seed that vaccines are bad, it's much harder to unscare them. Like, for example, um, another example of negativity bias that I've heard that I quite like is if you imagine you have a very, very old car that really shouldn't be running, if we're frank, uh, because it's, it's dilapidated and the engine barely works, and it starts, and you don't really spend enough, much mental effort going, huh, I wonder what went right there, but <laughs> you're late to right. work. You're just feeling lucky. Start. Yeah, and if, but then one day you're running late to work and your car isn't starting and you're ready to be an auto mechanic to get work that time. Hmm, I see. Uh, so, yeah. What was the risk factor with they have to perceive That's it right. as double, but it's actually significantly more dangerous, like 20 to 30? What was those numbers? Yes, there was a study that posed a hypothetical to parents uh, related to pertussis vaccination where they said, um, I thought I had it. I, I'll have to pull it up later and I'll, we'll put it in the show notes. But basically, uh, it said that there was, suppose that there is currently a flu going around that is essentially deadly to children. And it has about a 5% mortality risk for the child. And they ask how safe the vaccine would, <clears throat> I'm sorry, t uh, 10 per thousand mortality rate. Yes, that, that's how it was. Yes. They asked how safe the vaccine would have to be in terms of how many deaths it would cause for them to uh, agree to vaccinate. And the reality was that the probability of it not causing death had to be at least twice as high on average, uh, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because in principle, if it's safer, then you should do it. Uh, so that, that basically the point of that is that we're not great at risk assessment as a species, uh, especially when it comes to the mathematics of it. Um, and in particular, there's uh, I've seen a perception that there is different there are different ways to do risk assessment but the reality is that at the end of the day it's about math and what while an individual specific risk factors can vary the stats are what they are right and so it has to be twice as dangerous to not vaccinate to encourage vaccination but isn't mm -hmm. the risk of getting a vaccine preventable disease like pertussis 20 to 30 times higher 
It's yes. far more than double. Yes. So that's the other thing. There was a study uh, in uh, <clears throat> the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, by Fodka et al., which found, uh, which reviewed a bunch of studies, basically, uh, on looking specifically towards measles and pertussis. And people who were unvaccinated against measles were over 30 times more likely to get it and over 20 times more likely to get pertussis. Uh, so it's really quite dramatic, that disparity. Yeah, yeah, uh, very dramatic. And, and in particular, it really speaks to the fact to how contagious these diseases are, actually, because when vaccination rates decline in a community, the first diseases that come back are usually measles or pertussis because they require such high levels of vaccine uptake to be kept at bay. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it's an interesting statistic when you look at the actual details behind these attitudes. And that's something else I wanted to talk to you about, too. Like you said about risk assessment, we're not great with risk assessment. I think there are a few other variables that come into play when it comes to understanding why people don't vaccinate. And I think one of them is inaction versus action, right? If you Mm -hmm. don't do anything and your kids get sick, it doesn't feel as bad as if you do something and they get sick, right? But either way, you're making a decision. You're either choosing to vaccinate or you're choosing not to. Not doing something is still kind of doing something in a sense. So yeah, think about that, and, uh, that. Well, that's called omission bias. Uh, it has a term. Uh, and hmm. it's definitely a thing in vaccinating when it comes to discussions about vaccines. Um, so in general, people do have a tendency when there's uncertainty to be inactive uh, and kind of let things take their course. Uh, in particular, I've heard some people say, you can't undo getting a vaccine, but the reality is you can't undo getting a vaccine preventable disease either. Right. Uh, and that is the risk that you're taking in a direct sense. There are, of course, other ones on the public health scale, but for the clinical setting, the concern is the individual. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So in terms of more of the, the the psychological aspects here, what do you think about the phrase, vaccines are a victim of their own success? What kind of um, thoughts does that generate for you? Well, I, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, I, I have never in person witnessed a case of tetanus or even measles for that matter. Uh, but these diseases used to be absolutely devastating on um constantly and i mean smallpox there's a really terrifying disease one in three mortality rate and disfiguring and just really really dangerous uh and also the vaccine is actually considerably less safe than our modern ones uh so it's absolutely true uh i actually have a few statistics on that i just don't want to say the incorrect thing uh so i'm just going to get them really quickly yeah if you want you can screen share anything too if you'd like to show show anything one sec. It was just, uh, we went a little bit uh, in a, a different order than I thought we would be going. But um, let me just move this closer right here. Okay. Uh, sorry for the delay. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. All right. Is it showing? Let's see. Yes, it is. All right. Great. Uh, so. This is from the American Medical Association's Journal of Ethics, their virtual mentor, and it cites some really uh, compelling statistics, and it gives uh, a few anecdotes. But basically, polio used to be 
a far bigger problem than it is today. It would constantly paralyze people. Some people got lucky and they just kind of got a flu-like illness, but some people had to deal with permanent sequelae. Some people were confined to iron lungs, uh, and it was entire generations of people. And the summertime was just terrifying because that was really when polio tended to strike. We've also got uh, HPV now, which is the leading cause of not only cervical cancers, which it, which does thankfully uh, get discussed, but also now oropharyngeal cancers, uh, which has quite severe consequences, not include not uh, not excluding death. Uh, and I mean, here this is a little bit older. Um, this is from 2007. This looks at historical comparisons in morbidity and mortality for vaccine preventable diseases. Uh, so this looks at the pre-vaccine data, and it's, it cites the year, and it looks at the number of oh. cases, number of deaths, and it looks at the percent decrease. So diphtheria, we have managed in the U.S. to eliminate diphtheria, 100% decrease. And I mean, this was this was called the strangling angel of children. It has like a 10% mortality rate or so. It's uh, it forms a membrane over the trachea made out of your dead cells, basically that obstructs the breathing. It's a, it's a really horrifying disease. Measles, oh. um, sounds yeah, like measles, measles. I think we'll talk about a little bit later in more detail. But ninety nine point nine percent reduction in cases, hundred percent reduction in death. Although that uh, I, that's changed uh, at least on a global stage. Uh, mumps, ninety five point nine percent reduction in cases, hundred percent reduction in deaths. I mean, the reality is we just don't see these diseases anymore. Uh, so it's really hard to keep that in perspective. Like even rubella, uh, for most people, rubella is going to be a pretty benign, mild disease, except if you're pregnant and you get congenital rubella syndrome. But who, not all that many people, at least who have kids, have really seen how devastating congenital rubella syndrome is. In fact, the March of Dimes used to be the March of Dimes, um, used to be, um, I don't remember the actual name, but part of the funds did go towards uh, congenital rubella syndrome. Smallpox has been eradicated, thankfully. Tetanus uh, is quite rare now, in large part thanks to the vaccine. So, wow. I mean, it's really it's really hard to hold this in perspective, right? When, I mean, you have a pediatrician and they want to inject your child with something that, frankly, you don't fully understand and it's going to make your child uncomfortable and whiny and then who knows what's going to happen right but when you don't have the context when you don't realize that this 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 vaccine against diphtheria is going to prevent your child from suffering an absolutely devastating respiratory infection or this vaccine against measles is going to prevent uh subacute sclerosing panencephalitis which is virtually universally fatal um it's really hard to judge risk appropriately without the context of how dangerous these diseases are and the thing is, we don't make vaccines in general for diseases that aren't significant public health concerns because it's very expensive to produce a vaccine. It's just not worth it. Right. So we're not trying to just inject everyone with as many vaccines as possible. Like certain no, vaccines are not. only required for travel, right? They're not all. Yeah, absolutely. Them. There is actually, uh, this is the yellow book from the CDC, which provides guidances on which, uh, well, travel-related infectious diseases, and in particular, it provides instructions on which vaccines might be necessary depending on where you're traveling. So, for example, uh, Japanese encephalitis or tick-borne encephalitis, we have vaccines for those. 
but they're generally not necessarily in the U.S. We have vaccines against Ebola now, uh, which is uh, an extremely effective vaccine and quite safe. But we're not adding it to the schedule because there's no endemic Ebola in the U.S. There's no reason to. Mm, right. That makes sense. So, yeah, in terms of the actual psychological mechanisms behind the biases with vaccines, it seems like there's a prevalent form of confirmation bias going on. And it seems like maybe you can get around that when you let someone know that they're biased, like make that bias salient. Have you had any success with showing people? I mean, the first thing you looked into, you type into Google, why are vaccines dangerous? It's no surprise that's the information you come across, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's sort of, I think when people are trying to get informed about vaccines, they want to know about the hazards, they they can sometimes phrase the query in such a way that they're poisoning the well, so to speak, where they're naturally going to draw out the kinds of responses you say that not only present at best an exaggerated account of the risks of vaccines, but at worst, one that's totally fallacious. Right, right. And then that's what you're going to keep finding if that's what you keep looking for. There's a huge thing in science called researcher's bias, and it has its own name for a reason, you know, even for people who are struggling to be scientific. This is something that we observe. So it's not just limited to people on online. This is a general humanistic thing. How do you say you avoid confirmation bias in your own research? I, in general, I try to keep the, the search queries as vague as possible. Um, like, for example, I will put like, quote, vaccine and the the thing I'm interested in. So like, for example, uh, vaccine vaccine and acute disseminated encephalomyelitis as opposed to do vaccines cause acute disseminated encephalomyelitis or vaccines cause acute disseminated encephalomyelitis and in that way i'm able to generate results that have both of those keywords but not necessarily a strong bias for a particular viewpoint uh, i find that to be very helpful i also um when i'm doing literature searches i uh restrict the kinds of studies that uh, I'm interested in. So, for example, when it comes to vaccines, uh, especially when I'm uh, discussing them in a place like Vaccine Talk, I generally ignore mouse studies uh, because their clinical relevance is, uh, as far as things on a schedule go, virtually non-existent. I try to limit the uh, discussion to human studies unless it's something specific, like, for example, how uh, aluminum-based adjuvants work. That's very difficult to study uh, in humans, so and we do have to rely on mice. Uh, I also try to look for sources that are higher up on the hierarchy of evidence. In general, I'm not really interested in case series or case reports because no reliable conclusion can be made about causality in those circumstances. All they can show is a temporal association, and that's actually very weak in spite of what people may believe. The fact that I put on gray socks today and, I don't know, maybe I got in a car accident later, those two things aren't necessarily related. But when you look at a lot of things that vaccines are maligned for having caused, that's all the links that people have. They, they know that they, their child got the vaccine, and then they know something bad happened. Ergo, post hoc, ergo propter hoc. It has a name. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the logical fallacy where just because something follows mm-hmm. something, it doesn't mean it's related. So let's segue into natural immunity. So what do you think? We talked about this a little bit earlier, but I want to get into it with some specific questions in mind. What do you think about the idea that natural immunity is better because it lasts longer? 
and you know you might as well not get a vaccine you might as well just have a chicken pox party or something like that well i think foremost this is an extension of what's known as the vitalistic fallacy this perception that if something is natural it must inherently be better but the reality is that the one thing the concept of natural just doesn't make any sense there's a, a great comment in nature human behavior that goes into it and um, it's called actually nature is neutral and they raise a really interesting example so you think natural as being the opposite of artificial it means untouched by humanity right but let's say for example i have tomato paste right and then i go and add sugar to it most people would contest that it's now unnatural but now suppose i go and i remove that sugar most people would agree that that tomato paste is now more natural after I've removed the sugar than it was when I'd added it. But the reality is that I, a human, intervened twice to get the sugar out of it than <laughs> as opposed to once to get the sugar into it, which means I create, I, by definition, made something more natural, which just doesn't make any logical <laughs> sense, right? Because That's if funny. it was to be natural, I couldn't have touched it. So right. the other part is um, it naturally... That's a bad pun. Uh, the, the term itself has moral connotations, um, beliefs that like that we shouldn't meddle with nature, beliefs that we're playing God, and to some extent, I think that there is good discussion to be had about when that is and isn't warranted. But with regard to immunity, people who wax poetic about natural immunity are really not considering the consequence of that. And in fact, given the biases that the term is loaded with, I try to avoid saying natural immunity. I instead use the term infection-acquired immunity and disease-acquired or, uh, or disease-acquired immunity and vaccine-acquired immunity. Um, I like that more because natural sounds good because it fits well into the naturalistic fallacy. Which um, exactly. can you can you define that real quick in case somebody doesn't know what that fallacy is? Well, it's it's very simple. It's basically just the belief that something natural must be better in some way. Uh, maybe it's cleaner, right. maybe it contains less harmful ingredients, but the reality is that how natural a substance is tells you exactly nothing about how dangerous it is for you. Cyanide is entirely natural. In fact, uh, some of the prebiotic chemistry studies would suggest that cyanide is likely the precursor to RNA, which was the first molecule that gave rise to life uh, per oh. the RNA world theory. So you really can't generalize like that. Similarly, formaldehyde is thought to have given rise to sugars through a formal reaction. But now we're getting into the biochem, and uh, I think that I'll lose some of your audience there. So uh, anyway. <laughs> My lose me back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, regarding natural immunity, to, to extol it as something inherently virtuous, to, to I, I often hear people refer to childhood disease as being rites of passage, and that is just nonsensical to me. Why would you subject a child to gratuitous suffering that can be wholly prevented uh, as though there's something, there's some nobility in it? There, there's no reason to do that. It's, I think it's inherently abusive, to be honest. That makes sense. So in terms of natural immunity with hepatitis B, um, can you explain why hep B is needed at birth. And I guess that doesn't tie particularly into natural immunity, but it does kind of because they tried to transfer immunity through the blood and targeting high-risk groups, and it, it just didn't work. Can you give us some of those details? Uh, well, hepatitis B vaccines uh, in the modern anti-vaccine movement are particularly maligned uh, because of this perception that hepatitis B is a disease associated with sin. 
Uh, it's very common in those anti-vaccine circles to see memes that the child isn't snorting cocaine off of a courtesan's ass uh, and, or using uh, injection, uh, intravenous drugs or, or anything like that. And while certainly those things can be are risk factors for getting hepatitis B, the reality is that as many as 90% of people around the world who have hepatitis B are completely unaware of it because it has such a long incubation period uh, and it causes no symptoms until it's mm-hmm. quite late in the infection, wherein it is it remains the leading cause of liver cancer glo- globally and it leads to cirrhosis of the liver, which becomes fatal. Uh, so I, I just don't, I really don't appreciate it when people inject moral valency into a disease because there are no good diseases disease is bad disease is the evil thing that we should be trying to prevent um right right not moral because you got yourself sick and now you're immune and you're not even totally guaranteed to be immune like with hpv doesn't the vaccine work better than natural immunity the vaccine absolutely does work better than uh, hpv infection the antibody titers it elicits are much higher and they appear to last longer um Wow, and that's, that's very a consequence of the of the adjuvant that's used. Yeah, it's it's an extremely ah, effective vaccine, almost one hundred percent. Yeah, there right. there would be no vaccinology without adjuvants. Well, okay, that's not quite true, but it, it would be very behind, certainly. And so, not not only like with Hep B, which is missed during screening in pregnancy often, maybe because of the incubation period you mentioned, but not only missing the disease and transferring it, there's also the problems with the danger of natural infection, right? So like chickenpox and measles, can you talk about some of the potential consequences from those diseases that could confer natural immunity, but could also confer some other things as well that people normally don't think about because it's considered benign for some reason? Absolutely. Uh, so chicken pox is really commonly regarded as, well, do I really need this vaccine? Like, I mean, everyone had chicken pox. So it wasn't a big deal. They was they lied in bed for a week or whatever, and then they were fine. But this is a really jaundiced account of how devastating chicken pox can be. Um, so chicken pox is caused by a herpes virus, Varicella zoster. And what that means is it has the ability, once it infects the cells, to persist inside them in an inactive form that hides from the immune system. When the immune system becomes suppressed, in, which can happen for any number of reasons, it could be from something as mild as sleep deprivation or stress, maybe you needed a course of steroids, it will reactivate. And that produces shingles, uh, which is really devastating pain. Um, it's generally regarded as one of the worst pains a person can experience. And one in three people who get Varicella will develop shingles, uh, and I've had I have friends who have chronic pain conditions. Uh, like uh, there's a condition, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. Your joints can frequently dislocate, and like imagine having to deal with that on a regular basis, having to readjust them. They have subsequently gotten shingles. They said it was much much worse. It is an excruciating pain, and on top of that, shingles works by infecting particular nerve roots. And there's a nerve root in the face in the trigeminal nucleus, which uh, is known for a condition that is colloquially known as suicide disease. And it is so named 
because the pain that it produces is so devastating that it literally drives people to commit suicide. Uh, if you can, if you somehow develop shingles in that trigeminal nucleus, you are in for probably the worst time imaginable. Beyond that, uh, when the immune system is under clear shingles, if left untreated, like for example, if you don't take your antivirals, you can develop a condition called postherpetic neuralgia, which is a chronic pain condition, which uh, is essentially scarring of the nerves. Uh, and beyond that, if that weren't enough, that's way into the future. There's the fact that chickenpox is one of the only things that can common, not not commonly because it's not a common occurrence, but it can lead to strokes in children. Yeah, right. And so with uh, measles itself, um, there's one in three people that are infected out of a thousand get encephalitis from the measles infection. And that is way lower compared to the vaccine, which is like one in probably a hundred thousand or something like that. Well, uh, well, measles is a different disease, uh, but we can we can talk about it. I think personally, measles is um, considerably more dangerous than varicella um, in mm -hmm. in terms of direct mortality. But certainly, neither one should be taken lightly with respect to measles. Measles, on average, we will expect them to infect. 12 to 18 people who don't have immunity. And in fact, if you encounter someone with measles, there is a 90% chance if you are not immune that you will get it. And it's in particular, there are a couple of reasons for that. The first is the fact that it spreads via fine aerosols. So if you walk in an elevator that was used by someone who had measles, even two hours later, you can inhale the virus, which is hanging out in the air and it can initiate an infection. The other major factor is what people don't realize is you're contagious with measles well before the rash that it's well known for appears. The, in, oh. the infectious period for measles is about 10 days. It starts about four or five days before the rash appears, and it ends four to five days after. Uh, and it makes a very long opportunity to get, get someone sick. It's an extremely effective virus. But on top of that, as far as what it can do to the body, um, the best case scenario is two weeks of complete misery being fed ridden. The reality, however, is that anywhere from one in 10 to one in three people who get measles will be sick enough to require hospitalization. And of those, one in three people will have at least one complication, which can include things like pneumonia, which in children is a leading cause of death. It's a leading cause of bacterial pneumonia. It can cause infections of the middle ear that can lead to hearing loss. Uh, it can cause diarrhea, which is... Uh, unpleasant certainly but in high-income nations where you can ensure electrolyte repletion and fluid balance uh not generally a very big deal it, there are even case studies where it's been shown to cause appendicitis um but honestly that's not even a very oh. thing about it um yeah compared to everything else appendicitis, right? that's terrifying yeah the really scary thing about oh, it, it is thing, and uh, there's Sorry, there's a lag in the uh, call. What were you saying? You're good. What's the? Well, I'll I'll bring that up after you mention what's the scary part of measles for you. Well, for me, I think it's the fact that um, it can cause several kinds of encephalitis. Uh, it's that's inflammation of the brain. Uh, in general, anything that can infect right. the central nervous system is quite frightening, but. 
the the kind of encephalitis that it's best known for is subacute sclerosing and panencephalitis, which is really a horrifying disease. Case fatality ratios are about 95% or higher. Some some sources will even report a 100% case fatality ratio. But in essence, it, it manifests on average about six years after the initial infection, although I think there was one case report that showed a 40-year delay or so, uh, wherein it starts out very subtle. The patient could have personality changes. If they're in school, they might start underperforming. They might have a decline in their grades. And then it progresses and progresses until eventually you reach coma and death. And it's a slow and painful decline. And it's absolutely unavoidable in most cases. And if you get measles as a child, as an infant, before the age of one, the chances of that happening are about one in 600. And on top of that, if you are unfortunate enough to get it as a child in most parts of the world, that would mean that it happened before you could receive a vaccine and it will entirely be not your fault. But that's just that's just what happens. Uh, and actually, there is one more facet of measles that I would be remiss not to mention, which is how it interacts with the immune system. Um, measles mm-hmm. is uh, has been compared to having... Uh, an untreated case of HIV for five to 10 years condensed into two weeks as far as its effects on the immune system. It is absolutely devastating. It can eliminate over 70% in some cases of the antibody repertoire by destroying those B cells that make those antibodies. So that, to be clear, that's like, in, in layman's terms, that's like 70% of your adaptive immune system. Um, and it causes profound uh, immunosuppression through the way it affects the hormones that control your immune system, the cytokines, uh, for weeks after. Uh, in fact, uh, when we, the reason, how we first discovered this was actually through the um, PPD skin prick test. The PPD will form a reaction, uh, which is a specific kind of reaction called a type 4 hypersensitivity. And it was shown that after measles infections, people couldn't mount these, uh, these reactions, even though they used to be able to. Uh, so it's really not to be taken lightly. And in fact, estimates suggest that every year before the vaccine, it was responsible for 4 million deaths around the world. It's a really devastating condition. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So so the MMR vaccine, an added benefit is it prevents that period of immunosuppression, which can lead to a variety of other complications as well, even after you've defeated measles, right? It lasts afterwards. It definitively does that. Yes, there are uh, studies that show that it cannot cause that kind of immunosuppression, even though it is a live vaccine. But actually, uh, the measles vaccine has a number of very interesting differences in its virology uh, than wild-type measles does. But I I think that uh, Mm. that's not really a necessary discussion here. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Th- we'll get into that maybe in a later one. But I think yeah. the best way to end this discussion is what we said we were going to talk about the whole time, which is vaccine. What's in a vaccine, right? right? We well, kind of address some of this at first, but I think it's a good way to wrap it up. So in terms of adjuvants, you already explained the mechanism of action behind adjuvants. Um, they're needed to stimulate an immune response because the virus might not be able to do it on its own, or it might not be strong enough, the antigen. So in terms of the most commonly misconstrued antigen or adjuvant, aluminum, what do you think about aluminum aluminum adjuvants? Do you think the uh, global skepticism to heavy metals is warranted at all? Well, 
from a chemistry perspective, the term heavy metal is, doesn't really have a formal definition. It generally refers to metals that are literally later on in the periodic table, like lead, which are which happens to be heavy, but it has no formal definition. And in fact, aluminum is actually one of the lightest metals. But beyond that, I really struggle grasping why people are so afraid of it. Um, and in large part, I think that's attributable to the fact that they don't realize how prevalent it is. It's absolutely impossible for an individual to live their life without encountering aluminum. Uh, that's just the, the facts. Um, I mean, it's in, right, it's in the air, it's, it's in, in breast milk, milk, it's in formula. Yeah, it's, it's just impossible. And usually when you bring up possible routes of exposure for aluminum, people will bring up injection, injection versus, versus ingestion, ingestion, which is kind of a ridiculous point. Yeah, uh, and the reason that that is a ridiculous point, that there are several. Um, so first of all, the pertinent consideration here is something known as roots of administration, which is the way in which you give a drug. So for example, um, you can give a drug intravenously, you can even give it into an artery, or uh, in more extreme examples, uh, you can give it into the spinal cord intrathecally, or you can give it rectally, or you can give it sublingually, or you can give it uh, in, uh, transmucosally or intradermally. And the point is that saying ingestion is meaningless because it didn't specify a route of administration because that could mean uh, I could give it intra, uh, transmucosally through my buccal mucosa in my cheek, or I can give it sublingually under my tongue, or I can take it enterically through my gut. Uh, and similarly, in Injection, well, does that mean intramuscular injection, or does that mean intravenous injection, or intraarterial injection, or intracerebroventricular injection? Am I putting it directly in my brain? It's, it's really meaningless to say injection versus ingestion, but the pertinent difference here is bioavailability, because everything is going to end up in the blood eventually. So when we talk about vaccines, vaccines that are adjuvanted with right. aluminum are given as intramuscular injections. Uh, so what happens is the vaccine places a deposit and it forms a local highly concentrated deposit of the antigen that can stimulate the innate immune system and that will in turn activate the adaptive immune system leading to the production of antibodies. The result of this eventually is that the aluminum dissolves out of the deposit very slowly and makes its way into the blood wherein it will rapidly be removed by the kidneys and in fact the reality is that there is so little aluminum in a vaccine that if you measure the levels of aluminum before and after vaccination from a person's blood, there's no detectable difference. Um, oh, wow. And yeah, that was mechitis, right? Yeah. Um, I can't remember whose study that was. Um, it was in... It was mechitis. 2017. The other study, though... Uh, that sounds right. The other study uh, was by Kowalski, which looked at whether immunization history correlated with aluminum burden in children. Uh, so in principle, if aluminum is building up to anything resembling a toxic level and vaccines are at all a significant contributor to that, you would naturally expect that vaccinated children demonstrate higher levels of aluminum as, as they've gotten more vaccines. And the reality was that no correlation could be noted. So the idea that vaccines could in any way represent a toxic level of aluminum is, is just ignorant, and it's just not true. Um, the, there are circumstances in which aluminum toxicity can develop, but they're very rare and very contrived. It's basically 
you need very substantial renal impairment. Uh, like if you're a dialysis patient, and in that case, even in that case, that aluminum that caused the so-called dialysis encephalopathy was probably only able to do that because it was given intravenously, and anything taken intravenously has 100% bioavailability and it goes everywhere. And on top of that, their kidneys don't work right, so they can't get rid of it. And the other case was people who worked in aluminum mines, and even then, that is contentious whether or not they actually develop aluminum toxicity because they develop a lung condition, but it seems to be the result of the dust rather than the aluminum itself. The injection you mentioned, that wasn't a vaccine, was it? Say again? The injection or the injected aluminum that could cause what you said, that wasn't from a vaccine, right? That was different. No, 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 no. Um, that was from aluminum in the dialysate fluid. Um that gotcha. uh, we didn't know at that point that we needed to actually worry about that. Um, but the reality is Probably that there is absolutely no toxicity potential. Yes. And, uh, and I mean, there have been uh, conditions proposed to be caused um, purportedly by aluminum vaccines, uh, aluminum-containing vaccines. So, for example, people have contended that they lead to allergy um, based on a couple of observations. They the, the line of thinking usually goes, well, aluminum vaccines promote a kind of immune response called the TH2 immune response, and this is overactivated when you're talking about allergy. Uh, and also the observation that aluminum elicits IgE antibodies. But the reality is that evidence shows that there's no possibility, really, that they can contribute to allergic disease. And there was a study examining several hundred thousand people in Denmark who had allergies. Who, uh, who either received conventional allergen therapy, so things like antihistamines and steroids, and things who got subcutaneous immunotherapy, wherein they received the thing that they're allergic to and progressively escalating quantities with an aluminum adjuvant. So you can imagine these repeated injections, these people are being exposed to far more aluminum than anyone from the ramp, from any old vaccine schedule. Well, the findings are quite interesting because subcutaneous immunotherapy was far more effective at reducing uh, allergy burden than conventional immunotherapy with steroids and antihistamines. And on top of that, the other thing wow. that people claim aluminum does is it causes autoimmune diseases. Uh, and that is just ridiculous because the study also examined that. And the, the people who received the aluminum in the form of subcutaneous immunotherapy had a lower risk of uh, autoimmune disease. Uh, and on top of that, a lot of the studies that are used to support that claim, well, Personally, not to cast aspersions against any particular person, but they're almost all authored by one scientist whose publication record is. Frank, a 50 year career, which is just not realistic. Um, and a number of them have had to be withdrawn from journals because they have been deemed not to be publication quality. And in some cases, there's been overt fraud. And this condition that he proposes, uh, autoimmune syndrome induced by adjuvants or Asia, first of all, the diagnostic criteria are so vague that it doesn't even need to have evidence of being an autoimmune disease to qualify for a diagnosis. And on top of that, some of the studies that he used to support its existence are based on mice, which have a genetic predisposition to certain diseases, autoimmune diseases like lupus, which are given things like complete Freund's adjuvant, which is a veterinary adjuvant that is never used in humans. Okay, that makes sense. So there's also a thing where infants are born with less, they have more aluminum that's even in a vaccine. And that's especially true for formaldehyde, right? 
formaldehyde sounds scary, but there's a hundred times more of it in the blood before any vaccines are administered than is in any given vaccine. And it's used for DNA synthesis and stuff like that. So that's pretty similar too, in terms of the amount already in the blood compared to the vaccine. It kind of makes it pretty negligible. Formaldehyde is uh, is really interesting on the chemical level, actually, because people will often focus about why it's not harmful in vaccines, but I actually like to take it a step further. I like to explain why it is actually essential in some vaccines, and I like to do this by talking about the tetanus vaccine. So tetanus exerts disease through a toxin called tetanospasmin, and this is an enzyme that makes its way into your nervous system, and it effectively cuts off communication in the interneurons to suppress inhibitory signals. So in the absence of inhibitory signals, your muscles will get activating signals that cause them to contract. And the outcome of that, well, first of all, it's ridiculously painful and it can very quickly become fatal if it reaches your diaphragm because you'll stop breathing. But the spasms are so strong that the toxin can induce contractions that break bones. Um, and it's really, really devastating. And the reason that we need a vaccine, there's absolutely no argument here for natural immunity, is because the toxin is so potent that it can kill you at a dose less than what the immune system is capable of recognizing. There's literally too little of it for your immune system to notice something's there. So even if you get tetanus and you somehow survive it, which is, you'd have to be kind of lucky, the mortality rate is significant, you will have no immunity coming out of it. So where does formaldehyde come into this whole process? On the chemical level, formaldehyde is kind of like molecular glue. For enzymes to be able to work, they have to make pretty dramatic shifts in their conformations. They have to move around. By sticking it together with formaldehyde with molecular glue, you A, allow it to preserve all the structural features that it needs to elicit protective antibodies because antibodies are going to physically bind the toxin if you encounter it to prevent it from causing disease. Uh, and you can give a dose large enough that you, there's no harm to it and still stimulate the immune system. So that's one way that formaldehyde actually is making damn sure that vaccines are extremely safe. Uh, and beyond that, the major hazard people think of when they think about formaldehyde is the cancer risk. Um, and certainly that has some validity insofar as people who have in particular, repeated exposure to formaldehyde and inhale it do indeed have a heightened risk of cancer. Formaldehyde is a very bad carcinogen um, in that it's not good at being a carcinogen. And the reason for that on the chemical level is actually because it's so reactive. Uh, for something to cause mutations in your DNA, it has to get into your cells, get past all of those molecules without changing, and then react with your DNA, basically. That's what formaldehyde does. But your cells have a really complicated architecture. They have lots of molecules that you have to reach along the way. So the formaldehyde is expected to go into the cell, go all the way into the nucleus, go all the way to the DNA, and then just react with the DNA without reacting with any of the other molecules along the way. And when you think about it like that, it's kind of a ridiculous thing to to imagine that it's capable of that. I mean, um, not to like bring organic chemistry into this, but formaldehyde is... It's one of the most reactive aldehydes that exists because it's so small. It's very easy to reach. Uh, well, we, we need to get into that. But the point is, um, formaldehyde poses no tenable toxicity risk because it's a byproduct of your metabolism. It's shunted into pathways that we use to make amino acids, to, which are the building blocks of protein, to make 
nucleotides, which are the building blocks of DNA and RNA that we need to survive. And in any given moment, there are over 100 times as much formaldehyde in the body of an infant than from any given vaccine. And that formaldehyde gets metabolized in a matter of minutes. Right. So in terms of our discussion on what's in a vaccine, it's also helpful to add what's not in a vaccine, which thimerosal is included in that, right, which already poses very negligible safety risks, if any at all. But it's out of all the childhood vaccines, at least, and maybe in a few flu vaccines. So, yeah, um, there were concerns raised about the level of exposure that children get to mercury. Uh, that eventually led to the removal of thimerosal from all childhood vaccines, with the exception of a multi-dose flu vaccine. And of those, about only about 15% of flu vaccines are multi-dose vaccines. And if you don't want one with thimerosal, you, you are free to request one that does not contain thimerosal. But I, I think one of the big things when it comes to this is people hear mercury and they don't have any concept really of why it was ever there, you know, and, and for starters, thimerosal and mercury are not the same thing. Thimerosal uh, is, a, is a substance that dissociates into ethyl mercury and ethyl mercury is an organic mercury compound. Uh, and it's not, not the dangerous kind of mercury, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, so we tell pregnant women, for example, to avoid tuna uh, because it contains methyl mercury. And those sound very similar, but they are different molecules. And the reason for that is because as far as the kinetics go, ethyl and methyl mercury behave very differently inside the body. Methyl mercury can accumulate and build up to toxic levels much more readily than can ethyl mercury. Uh, mm. So that is a really pertinent consideration. And of course, considerations of toxicity are pointless without considering dose. And in fact, there have been studies in which adults were injected with 2 million micrograms of thimerosal, and they did not experience any symptoms of mercury poisoning. And for perspective, that represents 10,000 times the amount that the FDA found that infants would receive through vaccines. But on top of that, I think it's really important to take a step back and acknowledge why thimerosal was there in the first place. Uh, so thimerosal was only added to multi-dose vaccines, uh, which basically means it's what it sounds like. It's a vaccine that you can draw up and immunize people with multiple times. And the reason for its necessity was largely because of a contamination incident. In, in 1916, a batch of typhoid vaccine became contaminated with bacteria and it caused 70 severe reactions, and it killed four people. And in Australia in 1928, there was a similar event with, dep- with the diphtheria vaccine, wherein, um, how many was it? 12 children got injected with it, and they died because they developed abscesses and sepsis. Um, and you know what, what else is really interesting, actually? People are often really concerned about the neurological effects of the thimerosal. And when people first found thimerosal, they actually tried to use it to treat bacterial meningitis, um, and it didn't work. And there, there, no one knows for sure why that is. Uh, I, I don't think anyway. Um, part of it is probably related to the fact that it has a hard time crossing the blood-brain barrier um, because you can't access the central nervous system any other way, really. Uh, so no real toxicity risk as far as the brain is present with respect to thimerosal. People often people used to suggest, I don't see it as commonly now, but people often would claim that thimerosal um, leads to mercury poisoning and autism is a manifestation of mercury poisoning. 
this is just incorrect. I mean, uh, if you look at it, so autism, for example, uh, autistic people tend to have larger head sizes. Uh, mercurism, people with mercury poisoning, it tends to be smaller. Psychiatrically, mercurism, they have toxic psychosis. They might have nonsense, depression, or anxiety. Autism doesn't really resemble that. It can be comorbid with some of those conditions. Uh, in autism, people are hyper-responsive. In mercurism, they have peripheral neuropathy. It just goes on and on. It just doesn't fit, is the point that I'm trying to make. Right. That makes sense. So in terms of what's actually in a vaccine, right? Well, real quick, real quick, um, there's this idea that there's trace amount of thimerosal in certain vaccines. I looked into it, and it's only in one. It's in the DTaP vaccine. And even if it was in trace amounts, apparently in regular amounts, it's not harmful. So trace amounts, you know, really not harmful. But um, if adults can I, I have the equivalent of 10,000 vaccines uh, worth of thimerosal and not experience anything resembling symptoms of mercury poisoning, we can be very confident that it doesn't pose any tenable safety risk. It was right, and it's only an, out of an one. abundance of caution, basically. But right. personally, I don't think there was good reason for that. And I do sometimes wonder about the environmental impact because it means we can't use multi-dose vials. Ah, I see. Ooh, that is a problem. Well, thankfully, you know, it's not going to cause any skepticism that's unwarranted, but, you know... That's another topic. So my last question for you um, is back on aluminum. And I just want to ask before we wrap things up and, you know, we'll bring Steph back on and then I'll ask you guys to summarize real quick everything you said. So okay, tell me about the difference between a salt and a, a, a aluminum salt and elemental aluminum and how the metaphor plays into table salt, that common analogy. Can you give that for us? Right. Absolutely. Um, so by definition, a salt is a chemical species that is made out of two ions. And an ion is just a charged particle, something with either a positive or a negative charge. So table salt, for example, is a salt made out of sodium and chlorine ions. So sodium is a metal. Metals have positive charges when they're ionized. And chlorine is a non-metal, which have negative charges when they're ionized. Sodium, the metal, not the salt, not the ion, is so reactive that you can take a block of it and throw it in a river and it will explode and it will leave a pool of corrosive alkaline in its wake. Chlorine mm. was used as a chemical weapon uh, during World War One, wherein it would get into people's lungs and it would form bleach and hydrochloric acid, which is very unpleasant, to say the least. Um, and yet, we need both sodium and chloride to survive. They're absolutely essential nutrients. They, our body doesn't work without them. They're required for the function of our neurons. They're required for virtually every cell, actually. Um, and, and they make table salt. With regard to aluminum, they do. They do make table salt. Table salt's delicious. Table salt's great. I love table salt. Yeah. Um, totally harmless. With respect to Right. With respect to aluminum, it's the same um, concept. Um, so aluminum, I don't know how many people really think about this, uh, but elemental aluminum is quite rare. It virtually doesn't exist in nature because elemental aluminum is so unbelievably reactive. You can actually do a reaction called the thermite reaction, which does use quote unquote elemental aluminum, um, which reacts with iron oxide, rust basically, and it generates so much heat that it can melt steel. It's one of the most exothermic reactions uh, that, that we know of. 
The salt, on the other hand, is relatively quiet. Um, in particular, its reaction rates are very slow, especially compared to other metals in the body. And for that reason, we think it's not used. Uh, metals gen are generally used in the body to help enzymes function as catalysts. And to do that, they have to be able to form and break bonds relatively quickly. Aluminum is so slow about this that it just wouldn't make for an effective catalyst. So that's one of the reasons we think that it doesn't really seem to have any natural biological functions. I see. So it's quite different when it's a salt compared to when it's elemental, which is probably what most people think. Completely changes yes, the chemical absolutely. composition. Anything you thought was true about aluminum doesn't just translate to an aluminum adjuvant, right? You have to actually do different research for that, which you've pretty much explained here. My table salt doesn't explode in my mouth or or turn into bleach or hydrochloric acid. You know, it, it, I mean, it's just a fact <laughs> of life. Exactly. That's a great way to wrap that up. So, all right. Let's do a little summary here. We're about to have all three of us back. Oh, look, I'm on the side here. I want to be on top. <laughs> all right. That's better. Hey, so let's see how we're going to do this. So I'll give my summary last. Um, Steph, you've been off screen for a second. So how would you quickly summarize um, what you said today for everyone? A little recap. Um, I guess I can say that, um, you know, if you're on the fence about vaccines and you are um, unsure about what's in them or you feel some type of way about them, like you don't have enough knowledge to understand, you know, the what's in them and that you know it makes you scared like i will say definitely like research science um vaccines are safe they are they have always been safe um you know i'm a mom who was very heavily anti-vax at one time for years and um became a mom who i guess was enlightened on science um so I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is like um, vaccines are safe and they're effective and the diseases that they prevent against are not something you want to see your child go through. Like I did my child, right? Like my kid could have died from, from fucking whooping cough, right? He could have died. Um, so I guess as a mom to other moms or other parents, like, you know, just definitely do your research um, scientifically. Um, you know, vaccines are not out to hurt you. They're not out to kill, you know, like the ingredients, like, you know, it's the same ingredients like you would look in your shampoo bottle, like all these different chemical names. Like, yes, like they don't sound natural, but it doesn't matter. Like, you know, they're there for a reason. And same in vaccines. So I'm just saying, like, I guess, um, think before you don't vaccinate. Because vaccines yeah. save lives. And they for a long time, right? Like, they have saved lives for a long, long, long time. Um, and please do not be like me in the past where I was, like, super anti-vax. And I was like, you know, no vaccine is going to, like, you know, help my kid and then have your kid get pertussis for months on end. Like, no, don't be like me. <laughs> I guess is what I'm uh -huh. saying. Great. I don't know. Great summary. I don't know 
Well, maybe your past self, right? Your current self is doing pretty good here with this transformation. It's even, if you even look at the ingredients of an apple, it looks sketchy. Like, it looks like it's all chemicals. And I saw one anti-vaxxer said, I would never put that in my body. And it's an apple. People see these long names of ingredients and like, oh, that doesn't sound natural. Right. And it's like, well, it's even in an apple. Oh, actually, so. that reminds me. <laughs> it's like, okay. All right. <laughs> you know. I actually have a really good example play. relating to that. Um, mm-hmm. So glucose is the major sugar that we use for energy in our body. And that's the common name. But in the world of chemistry, there's an organization called the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, which assigns systematic names to everything. And these are useful because it lets you know what the molecule looks like just from its name. Do you guys want to guess what the systematic name of glucose is? Sure. One for methoxyhydroxide. <laughs> Not a bad guess. It's actually 2R3S4R5R-23456-pentahydroxyhexanal. Oh, that sounds so that wasn't very close. So toxic. Oh my god. It's it sounds kill me like if it. I take that right. <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a good example, yeah. Ed. So what was um yeah, how would you summarize example. what you said today? Because we went through a lot, so good luck. <laughs> we did go through a lot. Well, I actually, I'm surprised I didn't think to, to discuss this during the podcast, but there's a concept known as Brandolini's Law, also called the Bullshit Asymmetries Principle. It says that the amount of effort it takes to debunk something is an order of magnitude greater than the effort it, it takes to believe that thing, basically, to buy into it. Okay. Um, so the point with that that I'd like to make is it's very easy to become scared and it's a lot harder to become unscared, but it is definitely a worthwhile thing to do to inform yourself to speak to your pediatrician about your concerns in an honest way and with someone you can trust with a pediatrician who won't prejudge you um and ultimately i think it's really important to remember that vaccines are the product of centuries of science the earliest vaccines actually uh, go back to I, i think even the fourth century bc uh where people took scrapings of smallpox um patients and they inhaled them. Um, I have to double check that, though. Please don't quote me on that. I, I, I'll fix it for the show notes. If I Something like up. that. Um, yeah. Point is, centuries of science have gone into making vaccines what they are today. And safety has always been a foremost concern. And the, we know that the ingredients are safe. We know that the vaccines are safe because they are put through an incredibly extensive clinical trial process, far more than any drugs that you doubtlessly take, even supplements. Supplements have virtually no regulation, actually. Um, and ultimately, if there's one one thing I could leave people with, it's that vaccines are much safer than the diseases they prevent, and it's not worth the risk to, to not exactly. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was a good summary, well, that it, it's harder to debunk something than it is to actually believe it. So... So, I guess. Are there any um, comments? Are there any comments that you think we should? I know. Um, 
sorry. Um, the video lags for me. I couldn't hear what you said. Same here. I didn't catch it either. Um, while she's doing yeah. that. Oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was saying like, are there any like live comments, um, on the, you know, thread that we feel like we might have to address? Is that something that we want to do? I, um, I think we should wait to save the discussion for after the podcast. And we are after. actually going to have the discussion okay. in vaccine talk. So real quick before we get to in that, um, I guess. Right. Okay. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll link all that after. So I guess my summary would be pretty simple. Preventable diseases are dangerous. Vaccines work and they're safe. And the risk versus benefit shows yes. vaccines are worth taking. So just kind of to echo what Edward and Steph said, vaccines are safer compared to leaving yourself exposed to dangerous preventable diseases. And it's as simple as that. So this has been straight to the point number two. Please follow the podcast. Um, not every episode is going to be live on Facebook. There's going to be a few audio only ones. So YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, straight to the point show.com. You can find it at all those places. Please give it a follow. And we will be talking, like we just said, in Vaccine Talk, which you can search straight to the point or just look at the most recent posts. We're about to post it right after this. All our sources will be cited. Hopefully, Ed and Seth can both be there to answer questions. I'll be there myself for sure. And you can easily find it at vaccinetalk.org if you just want to be yes. zoomed right there. So I will see everyone in Vaccine Talk after for a discussion. And thank you guys both for your participation in Straight to the Point. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Straight to the Point. Edward and Steph were great. If you want to talk to either of them, feel free to join the group Vaccine Talk at vaccinetalk.org on Facebook. They are pretty active members, especially Ed. For the next episode, we will either have a specialist on the blood-brain barrier to debunk the polysorbate 80 myth, or an expert on vaccine inserts and the regulatory aspects surrounding immunizations. As always, you can find and support the podcast at our website, as well as find show notes and data that was used at straighttothepointshow.com or sttpshow.com. The Straight to the Point podcast is also available on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other podcatchers. So, thank you for listening. And I hope to see you for the next episode of Straight to the Point.